Well, dear friends, it is good to be with you and uh, to see some old friends as well as new. Uh, good to be uh, here tonight. As our conversation has uh, gone pre-service, we have a lot of friends in common. We have uh, a lot of contacts in common. Um, Stephen Atkinson's my name. I live in northwest Arkansas, as I sometimes joke. My accent is uh, not from these parts. It's a little dist more distant. And it is a little more distant than northwest Arkansas. It's uh, Northern Ireland originally. But having lived here 11 years and become American citizens, my fellow Americans, uh, I uh, have to, I become like those that I'm among. So, um, but I do say that once I get a little passionate in the preaching, then the Northern Irish Celtic passion comes forth. So uh, that, that may happen. Um, my labors here obviously are with Christian Witness to Israel, but having been a preacher for 35 years or more, I was a regular pastor for half my ministry life. Uh, I've been doing CWI work, Christian Witness to Israel work, for 19 years now, I think coming into my 20th year. Um, and I grow ever, ever more passionate, really for what the title of your sermon is this evening, The Puritan Hope, that biblical burden of the, particularly the Scots Presbyterians and indeed our Westminster divines. Um, we're not into the silly stuff with regard to Israel. We're into the biblical burden that the Westminster divines reclaimed, we may say, in the 1600s. And our Scots Presbyterians really uh, enfleshed that, the likes of McShane and Bonner uh, and several others. And so our work here in the U.S. is really twofold. Um, I, I will elaborate more at our 30 minutes after meeting um, with a PowerPoint, so I don't want to get into too much of that. But quite simply, if you, if you can't stay, please take a, a ton of the literature that is there this is kind of a summary card of what we do in the U.S. Um, and McShane, uh, you'll be interested to know, prayed the opening prayer at the first ever meeting in 1842. Uh, so it was the McShane, Bonner, uh, Rabbi Duncan, those kinds of men that I trust are familiar to you. Uh, and if they're not familiar to you, then I need to have a word with your elders because they ought to be familiar to you. Um, but please take our literature uh, and learn a little bit more of the, this ministry, what we have been doing, uh, but not resting on our laurels of what we have been doing, what we are doing. And again, you'll be uh, glad to know that my missionary colleague is a good uh, RPTS graduate, uh, Mitch Tepper, uh, working on the streets of Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, Jewish Pittsburgh. Uh, he, uh, I'll be going up to see him this coming week, and he is uh, my colleague in ministry. While I'm uh, our, our roles overlap, but I'm largely the, the, the guy that goes into churches all across the nation, and he's largely the guy that goes into the Jewish areas, although I'll be joining him on the streets uh, this week, and indeed he preaches uh, as often as he can get pulpits. He was preaching at RPTS actually recently as well. Uh, please pray also this coming Tuesday. I will be preaching. Um, I'll be doing the chapel sermon at RPTS Pittsburgh uh, and I'll be giving my annual lectures, which is three lectures on Jewish mission uh, this, this coming week. So please pray for that. Um, only one other thing that I'll maybe wave at you, and that is we have a new uh, course of 20 sermons stroke lectures 
uh, awakening the conscience. The founders of this ministry felt that, uh, again, we have a little quote inside, felt that there was a twofold task given to them as founding this ministry in 1842. The twofold task was obviously frontline evangelism of the, the Jewish people, specifically when it began in Jewish London, uh, but now worldwide. And the second task was to awaken the conscience of the Christian church. Because ultimately, if I get another missionary or another missionary or another missionary, it will never be enough for the six million Jewish people here in the U.S. And as I'll raise in the, uh, in the PowerPoint, it is the church's task. It is not the expert's task to reach the lost. We may mobilize, we may uh, assist, we may encourage, we may uh, burden build is really what I, I see myself doing. But the mission is your mission. And so we want to awaken the conscience of the Christian church to the biblical reason for Jewish mission, and then the present day, and in fact, even the historical uh, background to Jewish mission, and then the present day imperatives and realities that we face here in Jewish America, which houses 42% of the world's Israel. 42% of the world's Jewish population live here. Jewish mission is not something to be done in a land far away. People often ask me, oh, do you go to Israel often? And I say, I haven't been there in 40 years. Truth. My colleagues from Israel, I've, I've met with them. I had one over in, in my home for a few days in September, uh, and we keep abreast of what's going on. But to me, the work is here, friends. Jewish mission is here. And if we have as I hope to develop this evening, the Puritan hope, then let's see the mission field here. And let's pray intentionally and even engage intentionally. Well, I better stop, otherwise I will have another sermon to, to do pertaining to, to the mission. But maybe that will whet the appetite for those of you who can stay. Uh, we'll take a little break at the end of the service for about 15 minutes, and then we'll, have, we'll keep it tight to about 30 minutes of the PowerPoint and uh, I know it's been a long day for, for many families. Well, let us gather to worship the Lord, and we begin that worship with the call as we find it in Psalm 119 and 123. Psalm 119, verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. We long for that. Let's stand to sing the Lord's praise in the words of Psalm 67b. I always remind those who sing this that this is a psalm that the ancient church, the ancient Jewish believers, sang for us. 3,000 years ago, they were praying, and we are gathered here as a result of that prayer. They were praying that the nations would know the God of Israel and his salvation. And here we are. So as we sing, let us rejoice in that and then desire that that be put back into their, uh, into their court, as it were. Psalm 67b. Oh God, give us your blessing. 
Please be seated. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you on this Lord's Day evening with thankfulness and joy and anticipation that you would be among us and that to bless, even as we have sung, even as we have sung with the ancient people, that your salvation would be known unto the ends of the earth. We pray, gracious Lord, that we gathered here may rejoice in that salvation that you have made known to us, and that we will glory in that name that is above every name, even Jesus the Christ, and that we will desire that his name be made known and hallowed in the earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray that you would go before us as we read, as we pray, as we sing, as we put ourselves to the word of God. May it be that sustenance to the soul for each one of us. May it be a rebuke where necessary. May it be a balm where necessary. And grant, O oh Lord, that the people of God so gathered may be built up in their most holy faith and that we may sing the praises of Zion. We do pray for one another in this regard. We pray congregationally for each other with particular needs, with particular pastoral concerns. We pray that you would be very near. And particularly we think of the Covenant School in Nashville, and our dear brothers and sisters there, the pastor and his loss, and the various other families and their loss, we bow our heads at those heavy providences and mysteries. But we pray that you would be the God of all comfort to them, and even through the evil, may it be turned for good. We pray, gracious Lord, that in some way, even beyond our comprehension, we know you will be glorified. And so we pray that you would be to them all that they need in the, the circumstances way beyond our comprehension. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless the flock of God, all of us, Give us hearts aflame with the love of Christ. Give us souls that are burdened for the lost around us. What a broken and wicked world we live in. We pray, O oh Lord, that the gospel may have that free course and indeed be the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We pray that you would make us unashamed. Give us a holy boldness as we interact day by day with a lost world. May they see Christ in us. May the very aroma of Christ be about us. And so build your church. We know the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
We turn to you now, Lord, that the word of God would be that means of edification and life to us. Strengthen us and send us forth for your kingdom and for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Please turn in the scriptures to Ezekiel 36. I want to read from verse 21. Ezekiel 36 and verse 21 through 36. Ezekiel 36 and verse 21. But I had concern... For my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your forefathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which is, was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Amen. May the Lord instruct us from his most holy word. I think there is a little outline at the bottom of the second page of your bullet and just four points uh, by way of uh, outline for our, our thoughts this evening. The title that I have set before us is The Puritan Hope, uh, an alternate title 
that I have in my notes is simply why I am a kingdom optimist and why you should be too. The Puritan hope. We're all involved in mission. And again, I, I stress that point. I am a churchman. Um, I've actually got an article hoping to go into the RP witness on the parachurch dilemma. And I, I will actually address uh, this a little bit this evening. Parachurches are parachurch organizations. They come para alongside the church. We don't usurp the church. We're not uh, maverick independents. We work with the church. And that's what we do, particularly in CWI. We all are involved in this mission. And as we preach on mission this evening, or as we have a focus on Jewish mission this evening, we need to see this in the light of whether we have um, an optimism or a pessimism. Now, um, my daughter and fiancé are here with us this evening. I'm delighted to be visiting with them. They live in Laurel. Uh, I'm delighted to spend a, a couple of days. But my daughter will know uh, for a fact that my wife is the cup half empty and I'm the cup half full. And we have a beautiful compliment in our 40 years of marriage. Uh, and she keeps me right on that side and I trust that I keep her right on the other side. But on this, I'm a kingdom optimist. Do you know, the Lord teaches us to pray. What does he teach us to pray? First of all, he teaches us to address the one true and living God as Father. What father, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? We have a good father. And shall we not bring our requests to our good father? And our father is in heaven. And we are to initially and primarily pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If Christ did not mean the kingdom to advance, why are we given such a prayer? I have a, a young man in our home congregation with whom I have an occasional theological debate, and uh, he will regularly say to me, I wish I had your optimism, but I just don't see it. And he, by that he means he doesn't, not just in the world, he, he means in scriptures. And my common response to him is, my optimism comes from the Lord's Prayer. If it's all doom and gloom, why did Jesus teach us to pray this way? Is it pointless to pray for the hallowing of his name? Is it pointless to pray for the Lordship? I'm preaching to, to our peace, the kingship of Christ upon this earth. And it is on this earth, remember? Your will be done on earth. Why are we taught to pray this way? So I want us to look at these verses from Ezekiel 36, and I will reference a little bit also in Romans 11, 
Uh, I can't do a sermon on Jewish mission without getting into Romans 11 as well, uh, but I will parallel some of that kingdom optimism. Now, again, I'm here on a one-off, and uh, I I won't have uh, opportunity for any great in-depth exegesis. Please excuse that, excuse that, and uh, I'll I'll maybe let uh, Skip Dusenbury take that in future weeks. (laughs) But... Sometimes people will ask, indeed, we had a little conversation pre-service, but uh, how, how much of this is fulfilled? Well, I would say this has been fulfilled, but not fully filled. And I think there are various passages in Scripture that we need to retain a certain amount of mystery. This has been fulfilled, but not fully filled. We may say, okay, when they return from exile... And indeed, at the end of the service, we're going to be singing that wondrous psalm, 1 to 6. They were like men who dreamed. Mouths, tongues were filled with laughter. The the, the blessing of God in that return from exile, was, was that a fulfillment? Was the rebuilding of the second temple a fulfillment? Yes, but not fully. Fast forward to New Testament times. You remember Jesus speaking with that Jewish leader. You must be born again, Nicodemus. What? Do I need to go back in my mother's womb? Or what's all that? Nicodemus, you don't know these things? Go and read Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus. You get a new heart. Isn't that what we just read? So has this been fulfilled in Jesus' day? Fulfilled and not fully filled. Or or take us into the the post-resurrection and, and ascension take us to the day of Pentecost and thousands of Jewish people at Shavuot when Peter preaches the Messiah from the book of Joel. Is this fulfilled? As the Spirit comes and indwells and the temple is their heart. Is it fulfilled? Yes, but not fully. And indeed the Jewish lawyer Shaul, whom we know as Paul, would see that expansion of the Jewish church into Gentile territories, and he would even write to the extremities of that world at that time, indeed the extremities of Rome. There's more coming, there's more coming. And so we think of Romans 9, 10, and 11, and my people have experienced a hardening, but it's a hardening in part. There's more coming. There's divine favor. There's a grafting in again of the natural branches. Read Romans 11. Well, actually, if you have a chance, turn over to Romans 11. And we'll just read a couple of those verses. Romans 11:23. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Or 11:25, Romans 11:25, A second part, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God will do what God will do. 
Therefore, I am a kingdom optimist as I await God's doing. Well, let's return back to Ezekiel 36 and just flesh this out then under these four headings. As you have in the, the notes before you, we find a concern for the holy name in verse, 30, verse 21 and 22 of Ezekiel 36. We have a vindication of his holiness in Israel, 23 to 25. We have a transformation of Israel or action for the holy transformation in verses 26 to 32. And then the intention for the holy transformation of the world, verses 33 to 36. And I hope you can see where I'm going with this because every part of Ezekiel 36 is drenched with the I am. And indeed what we have in, in those four points, I had concern, I will vindicate, I will act, I will do it. And indeed, those of you who know the very next chapter in the Valley of Dry Bones, it seems as if that very next chapter is, is a vision, uh, a, a, an illustration even, of the promise in its fulfillment. So let's walk these through. First of all, the concern for the holy name. Verses 21 and 22. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned, among the nations. The name of the Lord has been profaned, and so we are taught by Jesus to pray, Hallowed be your name. Just as a little aside, I want to challenge pertaining to your prayer meetings and your prayers. I can't speak for my good brethren, the RPs, but I've been in many prayer meetings which are, as we've often said, organ recitals. <laughs> In other words, we go through all the organs in the body and pray for everyone's medical ailments. Now, those things are not unimportant. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But where do our prayers begin? The longing, the, the, the burden, the urge, the concern that, that we may have as placed within us for the hallowing of the name. That's primary. You know, sometimes it's said when you're involved in mission, you've got to love people. Well, you ought, you, you ought to. You ought to have a love for people. You ought to have an ability to talk to people. You ought to have an ability even to talk to strangers. We'll be on the streets of Squirrel Hill. The strangers will be passing by. We need to interrupt their normal schedule, and we need to have enough love and even a little boldness to break into their normalcy of their life and talk to them about eternal realities. We want you to have a burden for souls. We want you to go out to this district and have a burden for souls and interact and intentionally engage. But I want you first and foremost to have a concern for King Jesus. The honor of his name. Father, your kingdom, your will on earth. These are the things that we find right at the beginning of this. I had concern for my holy name. I don't want to get political, but there is a very religious, anti-Christian bent in the seats of power. And we're facing it on, on multiple, multiple fronts. The ridicule of God 
The blaspheming of his name, the blaspheming of his order, the murdering of his image in the womb, the perverting of his order of male and female and all manner of gender fluidity and promoting that insanity among children. Heaven, we got a problem. And he answers, I have concern. I have concern for my holy name, which they profaned among the nations. The reason I'm a kingdom optimist is because God is concerned. Whether it's a defiled ancient land or a defiled chosen people or a defiled created order or a defiled man who is the epitome of all creation, God will retrieve his honor. I had concern for my holy name. We need to, we need to pause on that. You, you, again, my, my psalm singing brethren, you know what Selah is. We need a few more Selahs. We need a few more pauses. I struggle to understand a lot of revelation. I'm, I'm with Calvin and not having the key. But you know that verse in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 8, 1, when the, the seventh seal is opened. And it says, it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I'm thinking, I, I, just, I just don't understand that. Silence in heaven for about half an hour when the seventh seal was opened. We need a few more silences. And I had concern. That, that's just, let's just pause. I am married 40 years to the wife of my youth. We were engaged at 19 and married at 21, and we were so much more mature in those days. I, yeah. I have four children, and soon to be 14 grandchildren. My quiver is full and my Christmas is expensive, as I said, yes. We had a family reunion over Christmas. Esther remembers it well. It was a noisy affair. <laughs> it was noisy. Children everywhere, family. But they're gone now. We have family living in Texas, Kansas, Maryland, and uh, now, as of two days ago, Cambridge, England, actually, one of my family. But now it's just Wendy and I, and it's quiet. Think of the awesome solemnity of the silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then bring us back to Ezekiel. Heaven, we've got a problem. I had concern. I have concern. You know, in, in Romans, Paul gives that wonderful drama of redemption throughout the whole book of Romans. And you come through from, from Romans chapter 1 and, and the gospel of God, the power of God, the, the, the judgment of God at the end of Romans 1 and into Romans 2. Then that uh, Clear statement, all have sinned in Romans 3. And so it goes on. I'll not take you all the walk away through Romans. You come up to Romans 8 and you begin Romans 8 with there is no, no condemnation. 
to those who are in Christ. And Romans 8 uh, finishes with, there is no separation. And I am of the mind, if you grant me the liberty, that at that point the apostle put his pen down before writing Romans 9. And it was heaven, we got a problem. My people, your people, have largely, largely turned away. And the, the Lord, through the Spirit, in the plenary verbal inspiration of the apostle, and the pen moves across the page in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Don't worry, Paul. I've got this, and I'm going to tell you how it's going to work out. So in Romans 9, I've got angst. I, I, could, I could wish myself a curse for my own people. There's the covenants, the, 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 the law. From them, the human ancestry of Christ. It's okay, Paul. I've got concern. My heart's prayer and desire for, for them is that they may be saved, Romans 10.1. I got this, Paul. And so as we read in Romans 11 about that grafting in again and the gifts and calling of God that are irrevocable, not able to be taken back. I often think of that in the sense of we send texts, don't we? We send texts or we send emails. And sometimes we may have sent it to the wrong person or we've maybe copied a couple of other people in that shouldn't have been copied in and we can't take it back. It's done with all the damage maybe that might be done with it. That's irrevocable. The gifts and calling and covenants and promises of God are irrevocable. Paul, I have concern. Ian Murray, writing in that classic book, The Puritan Home, I think actually I do have it on the book table. I read it again recently. Excellent read. I hadn't read it actually in many, many years, but I reread it just in January, Puritan Hope, and Ian Murray says this, Puritan thought never gave way to the full feeling that because the condition of the world was so deplorable, the second coming of Christ was the only hope for mankind. Interesting. The Puritans never thought that everything is so bad that the only thing that's going to happen now is second coming. We're done. Murray writes, in their mind to have done so would have been to fall into unbelief in regard to the promised results of the first coming. In other words, because of the belief that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, then sinners are going to be saved. There are promised results of the first coming. Otherwise, why not just bring another flood, Lord? Oh, yeah, you, you promised never to do that. Or, or bring another cosmic storm upon Sodom and Gomorrah. No. His first coming was to usher in the kingdom. Christ is king. The strong man is bound, and Christ is plundering the nations. I, I always say that whenever the Lord gave this light to this tiny, insignificant people in the Middle East... My Scots-Irish ancestors were dancing around stone in the highlands of Scotland in total darkness. But the Lord gave light to this little people, not because there were any special, but because, because. But then when Christ came and the gospel came forth, the man, the message, the ministry, the first missionaries, they were all Jewish. And they started to take it to the nations. 
because Christ was going to plunder Satan's territory. He has concern for his name. Second point I need to raise, and I need to make some progress in time, is the vindication of his holiness in Israel. For this, verses 23 to 25, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the vindication is of his holiness in Israel. God will bring holiness to his ancient people because he is vindicating his own holiness. Commentator Ian Duguid is correct in this. If there had been no other reasoning involved for God than the necessity of dealing with Israel's sin, permanent wrath would have sufficed. But what Ian Duguid is saying that would have not have vindicated his holy name. Because he, by his name, had entered into covenant with them, irrevocable covenant. So Ian Duguid continues, because of that sovereign, irrevocable act, mercy not only may, but must be shown to Israel. And so again, we say, has this been fulfilled? Not fully filled. And in fact, according to Romans 11, Israel has experienced this partial, not complete, hardening. So the Jewish apostle is using these prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah showing their partial fulfillment and the expectation of what is yet to come. And it has to be said that the church has largely lost a sense of expectation. Wasn't it William Carey who who said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God? The Puritans were men of hope. If these are our heroes, for want of a better word, then then learn their hopefulness. We we live in days of great depression and it seems as if everything is, is all downhill. Ian Murray says, it colored the spiritual thought of the American colonies. It taught men to expect great outpourings. It prepared the way to the new age of world missions. And then Ian Murray continues, today, and that's 20, 30 years ago when he was writing, the church no longer appears before men as a world-transforming power. Gone are the anticipations. Why? God has concern. God will vindicate. This is my father's world. This is not a world from which we must escape. This is the property of Christ. Hallow your name, Lord. On earth as in heaven. Again, I don't need to give you well-taught folks a, a history lesson, but let's just reflect. The 16th century was a grace filled time of of reformation. The 17th century was a a great century of expectation. The the, the movement into the colonies and, and the developing in a new world and the way the Lord 
even, again, it's, it's a, for another time, the way in which the Lord ordered his sovereign purposes among his ancient people, how they were cared for by reformed countries like Holland, how they were cared for in the New World by reformed countries like Brazil until Brazil was taken over by the Portuguese and then they were kicked out again. It was reformed Christianity that cared for the ancient people. That's a fascinating story in itself. But when we come into the 1800s, we see this, this Puritan hope, this expectation, this explosion of world missions, this desire to claim the world for Christ. And our own ministry to the Jewish people started right then in 1842. This Puritan hope concerning Israel and the world. God has concern. God will vindicate. And it ushered forth in passionate, prayerful, sacrificial labor for the Jewish people and for world missions. But then let's continue the history lesson. What happened in the late 19th century and early 20th century? Liberalism, pessimism, and dare I say it, a new theology of dispensationalism with a new idea of an escape plan from the wreck of the world. A secret rapture. Well, now heaven, we do have a problem. All we need to do is get people to get their ticket. And so it has produced the, the finite, easy believism, walk the aisle, results-centered ministries. Whatever happened to salting the earth and enlightening the earth with the gospel that turns the world upside down in the will and pleasure of the Lord? Now instead, all we do in the hymn singing places is to sing, one bright morning I'll fly away. Where is the vindication of God in that? Alexander Duff, Scottish theologian. We can afford to work in faith for omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Wow. God's concern. God's vindication. Thirdly, God's action. Verses 26 to 32. In the mess of idolatrous Israel, what do we read here? I will take. I will gather. I will bring. I will sprinkle. I will cleanse, I will give, I will put, I will cause, I will deliver. Verse 32, I will act. We haven't time to deal with each one, but it speaks of, of, of divine action for godly transformation of a hardened people, but out of his own free grace. This is Jewish revival. This is saving and sanctifying. One thing we find in, in, in the world of Jewish missions in the U.S., we find so many people interested in Israel for all the wrong reasons. And we find that, that all this interest and all this passion and even all this money going into Israel for all the wrong reasons and in all the wrong directions. It's that they may be saved, not that they might find the red heifer and get back to the land and build the third temple and start sacrifices and all the silly nonsense. It's that they may be saved. That was the Puritan hope. And this, as we read it here, is, is Israel's rebirth. And what we have in 36 is then envisioned in 37, the valley of dry bones. We have a, 
a sermon on our table by Spurgeon on that very passage. In fact, he was preaching for our ministry in the 1870s on the Valley of Dry Bones, the coming to life. How does that happen? It comes by preaching to bones and praying for wind. That's it in a nutshell. And revival comes. This is a restoration not to a land, but to their Lord. And that's far more important for us to have our mindset. As I said earlier, God has providentially placed 42% of his ancient people here. The story of how they got here, that's fascinating. Uh, I'm tempted to say just go read in one of the sermons of the AC course. The natural branches are here, six million of them. And they're living side by side with how many Christians? 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. It depends how conservative we are in our estimates. But nonetheless, it's in the millions of Christians. Six million and what, 10, 20, 30 million Christians? This is no accident. This is a divine providence. And to whom much has been given, much will be required. Am I optimistic about them coming to faith? As much as ever. How will it happen? By preaching the, to the bones and praying for the wind. By street preaching. By street engagement. Yes. But by friendship evangelism. By you engaging with your Jewish neighbors. It will not be done simply by outsourcing to experts. And that's kind of what I'll say maybe a little later. No, it's, it's the church in mission. Alexander Duff, again, ordained in the Church of Scotland in August 1829. He was their first missionary. But interestingly, he was not like some of the missionaries today. He was no maverick independent. Ian Murray says his calling involved a new and comparatively untried concept, namely that the church herself is a missionary society. Yes, a thousand times yes, because mission is from the church, through the church, to the church. If any of you have your Table Talk magazine, uh, if you have them up on your shelf, I reference you to this one of last year, April 2022, and it's all about world missions and reformed theology, in particular, reformed missions in practice. Dear brother writes there that mission is from the church, through the church, to the church. I wholeheartedly say amen to that. So Jewish mission is not something you pay the experts to bring about. It will be by a whole church armed, awakened, resourced, and mobilized. I'm giving you my lectures for Tuesday at, at, uh, at the seminary. I'm dealing with awakening the church, resourcing the church, mobilizing the church, and so that the church herself will engage in frontline missionary labor. God has concern. God will vindicate. God will act. Psalm 102, 13. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. My reformed brethren, please, enough of the petty pessimism or the flyaway rapturology, or even a reformed monasticism where we hide away with our books and we have our little reformed monasteries where we just keep ourselves safe. We have a world to win. 
And in the mix and mess of the craziness that is out here, there's nothing more crazy to them than a man who walks on water who is God. So let's tell that story. Because it's as believable as the strange stories that they're coming up with today. And in divine and sovereign favor, perhaps the Lord in our day may grant revival. And his concern and his vindication will overflow into his action. This is the Puritan hope. I'm a kingdom optimist, and you should be too. Finally, briefly, the intention for the holy transformation of the world, verses 33 to 36. And we read just briefly there. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know, I am the Lord, I have spoken it. I will do it. You see, Jewish mission, and and our Westminster divines knew this, and that's why they put Jewish mission front and center uh, in the documents. And that's why in larger catechism 191, don't think 911, larger catechism 191, there is that that, uh, exposition of the Lord's Prayer on thy kingdom come. And our Westminster forefathers put in specifically that we should be praying for the Jewish people. Why, why them specifically? That was a theological issue. And so that was carried through in Reformed theology, in Puritan theology. And indeed, the great missionary leaders of the 19th century were all greatly concerned for Jewish mission. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor's concern was China. But did you know each year he gave money to the mild May mission to the Jews? Once a year. He wrote a note in that little uh, uh, envelope as he sent it to the mild May mission to the Jews. And the note was Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. To the Jew first. He, he was looking at China. But he also knew the importance of Jewish mission. And the, and the funny thing is that the Jewish mission actually sent it back to him. With the check and Romans 1.16 in it. Underscored. And also to the Greek. So the Jewish mission saw that it's not just us, it's not, it's not just this, it's, it's the world. But many of the missionary societies and the mission leaders of the 19th century believed strongly in, in Romans 9 through 11. Professor John Murray on these verses of Romans 11, there awaits for the Gentiles gospel blessing far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. And this unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with their loss. In other words, Israel's turning will be as great as their turning away, according to Professor Murray. Romans eleven twelve, 12, as, as you know those verses. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And Romans eleven fifteen, 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Their rejection means that we got it. The reconciliation of the world. The world was being plundered for Christ. Their rejection meant the reconciliation of the world. But even more, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Someone once said that 12 apostles, 12 Jewish apostles turned the world upside down. What will be like when 12 million of them turn? 
No, I don't want to fly away. I want to see King Jesus reigning in the hearts of his blood brothers. Just like Joseph, remember, you know the Joseph story. And at the end of the, the story, Joseph has been hidden. He's been hidden to his brothers and the brothers are coming and going. And, and, and he's giving them a hard time and, and testing them in some measure. But eventually he breaks down and he says, it's, it's me. I'm Joseph. It's your brother. I want to see Jesus do that with his brothers. It's me, Jesus. I want to see his brothers finally recognizing him. I want to see world revival. I want to see the world, the earth, being filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. My young theologian at home may not be convinced. You may not be convinced. But I read it here in Ezekiel. I have concern. I will vindicate. I will act. I will do it. I'm a kingdom optimist. And I hope 